New York's underground isn't exactly unfamiliar territory. After all, every day, commuters venture below the city's surface to ride the train. But a subway or Metro North ride won't take you where we're going on today's Cityscape. Good morning. I'm George Borarki. On this morning's show, we're heading to a couple of very secretive places below Manhattan. We are now down in the deepest, largest basement in all of New York City. And later, we'll dig beneath the city's surface with a third-generation urban miner known as a sandhog. The job is dangerous. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our first stop this morning takes us deep below Grand Central Terminal. We are now down in the deepest, largest basement in all of New York City. That's Dan Brucker. He's a Metro-North spokesman and Grand Central historian. This basement of Grand Central Terminal is more than 10 stories below the main concourse floor of Grand Central Terminal, which is already one story below street level. This basement is huge and it's vast. You would expect something of this size in Grand Central. And yet, it's on no blueprints, no drawings, no diagrams, no sketches of Grand Central Terminal. It is New York's largest basement, deepest but its most secret basement. Here is why it was so secret. During the Second World War, there was a tremendous fear that saboteurs, or fifth columnists as they were known then, would make their way down here simply with buckets of sand, which is why this place was guarded by the military with shoot-to-kill orders if anybody showed up here with buckets of sand. Here's why. Because down here in this vast basement, from one end to the other, were these huge, vast, dynamo-looking machines, nearly a dozen of them, gigantic in size. But they weren't dynamos. What they were were rotary converters. They would be operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they would be converting alternating current into direct current. They would take that direct current, shoot it over the electrified third rail, and power the trains in and out of Grand Central Terminal. The great fear was this. If spies or saboteurs would simply come down here and pour sand, that's all, into these rotary converters, they would have killed all of these rotary converters just by pouring sand into them. That would have not only killed the rotary converters, it would uh, kill the conversion from alternating current to direct current, kill the shooting of that direct current across the electrified third rail, would have killed the trains in and out of Grand Central and farther up the line, but more critical than that is it would have killed the vast majority of war material and troop movements in the Northeast. Those loud buzzing sounds you hear is the sound of the telephone bell. That's because when these machines were operating, it was so loud and so hot, you couldn't even talk to each other unless you were shouting each other's ear. So that's the way the telephone rings down here. Now, by doing all that, it would have killed most of the troop and war material movements in the Northeast. Now, guess who knew about it? It's so secret. No diagrams, no blueprints. Adolf Hitler knew about this. How did he find out? He found out because one of the people who worked down here, a German a national, expatriated back to Germany. In 1942, Hitler 
now had a war on two fronts. He was a, already attacked Russia, and that wasn't going very well. And by December 7th of 1941, now we were in the war against him. He had to slow down America, really stall us. One of his personal plans for sabotage was to send two submarines, one of them landing in Amagansett, Long Island, New York, the other one landing in Maine. Those saboteurs were to get out from there and make their way down here. The ones that landed in Maine, they were spotted by citizens who used binoculars to watch the coast, but they disappeared into the night. The ones on, on Long Island were never seen but the next morning on the beach. An ordinary citizen walking his dog found their Belgium and German cigarette packs. Now the FBI knew about it. The FBI knew that we had spies, saboteurs here, but where were they? Here in Grand Central Terminal, where we used to check baggage, boy, did they check it. You think you just had to check, they would open up and examine it. And what did they find? They found the luggage of these German spies who had checked their baggage here into Grand Central Terminal because this was going to be their, their main area of destruction. Well, now the FBI knew where their luggage was, but where were they? Here, what they did was the FBI sat, sat right on that luggage, day in and day out, and then when one of the spies came to get some money and materiel out of it, that spy was arrested here in Grand Central. His fellow spy was arrested in what used to be the Translux movie theater that they had here. The other two spies were also caught. The other two spies were executed, and the two spies who worked down here were imprisoned and released in the mid-1950s. And they are alive to this day, but they're not down here. We're down here. They're not. They get no invitation even today. Because of that event, then, and we do have some of these old, huge uh, trans, uh, uh, transformers still down here, most of them were taken out, and we have now solid-state rectifiers. They do this conversion from AC to DC, but in solid state. No moving parts, yes? Like the way you plug in a cell phone. Because of that event in 1942, we have a very long memory here on the railroad. Because of that event in 1942, we so overbuilt the rectifiers down here. Why would this ever happen again? Just in case. And it is so overbuilt that if one of the rectifiers dies, the other two can take over, handling 670 trains in and out of Grand Central Terminal every day. If two rectifiers die or are sabotaged, even the last one could handle all of the trains in and out of Grand Central. And even if all three of those rectifiers died or were killed or were sabotaged, we now even have means of drawing back power from other substations to give us some service out of Grand Central Terminal. So this deep sub-basement in Grand Central Terminal is not only essentially the heartbeat of the terminal and of the trains, it also has a critical history to tell about the terminal and about United States history and really did its part for the World War II war effort. I would imagine that post 9-11 you had to take a closer look at security once again? Not only do we do that, but on the very day of 9-11, the people who were working down here, instead of just working down here, were virtually living down here. They brought them food, brought them water, and they lived here day and night, 24 hours a day. 
to protect this place, to guard this place, to make sure we weren't going to be sabotaged, that we had the trains operating. Our mission was to evacuate New York City, of course, and we would not be able to do it without these rectifiers. So indeed, and since then it has gotten to be more and more secret. People don't blithely come down here for even for visits, even for historical visits like these. They really get filtered out a good deal, lest people know how to get there. That we won't allow. On occasion, we will allow people here to come and see it. What do you know about the excavation for a basement like this? Right. The excavation back then, try to imagine in 1913 technology, creating, and still now, the deepest, largest basement in New York City. What they had to do was drill holes down through here and stick tubes of dynamite, blast it, blow apart the rock, scoop it up and out, put it on horse and cart, and then haul it away. A bit of interest is that all of the rock that was hauled out of the basement of Grand Central Terminal is now on the banks of the Hudson River. The New York Central, which, of course, had their tracks up and down the Hudson, use it as riprap, as stone, on the Hudson River bank, so it's still there. So when you operate, when you go on a train on the Hudson Line, you can see the stones on the Hudson Line that came from this deep basement. We, of course, came down an elevator, but I would imagine there's also a staircase. There are stairs that lead down here. These stairs have a series of doors, all of which are locked one after another after another to make sure that we've got a secure basement here. Also, even the elevators. To make arrangements, even for today, is something that has to be done well in advance, that has to be vetted, uh, people's names taken, we know what's going down here and exactly why and how we're making it. So it's, it's not a tourist spot. Except maybe for today, as Brucker points out all there is to see in Grand Central's secret basement. Down in the hidden basement, there's actually a hidden area in the hidden basement behind the antique control boards. It looks like something out of a Frankenstein movie. What we have over here is a very odd-looking assembly uh, on the wall. We have four large brass bells that are flush against this unit. And underneath them, we have, of all things, glass-encased electronics with the name Westinghouse prominently displayed on them. And under that, we have what looks like ticker tape machines with paper in them. Here's what this story is. We have, out of Grand Central Terminal, three tunnels. There are two tracks in the main tunnel and one track each on either tunnel on on either side. Back in 1913, before there was radio communications, if uh, a train was stalled in the tunnels, how were we to know where it was? We didn't want to smash into it. We needed to rescue the people from it. Cord was strung along the walls of Grand Central Terminal uh, and through the tunnels. Uh, If a train stalled, a conductor or a train person would reach out and pull that cord. It would ring one of these four brass bells. And then underneath it, those glass encased electronics, it would in 1913 compute the location of that train and then it would print out its location in code on these um, teleprinters with paper still in them. Now, mind you, this was such an achievement, having something of a computer back in 1913, that Westinghouse encased all of their electronics in glass. They wanted everybody to see it. Not only that, uh, they made sure their name was proudly displayed. But 
all of this material and this entire equipment was obsolete by the 1920s when we had voice radio. And yet, even though it was obsolete, the people who worked down here in this deep, dark basement decided to keep this exactly the way it was uh, because thinking that maybe somebody in the 21st century might like to see it. And sure enough, here we are examining what they have saved, even down to the paper and the teleprinters. And you got to give them credit. How many people now today are saving their old computer equipment? Yes, and their old color printers in case somebody a century or two from now want to see it. But they thought of it. As Brucker walks us around Grand Central's basement, he stops in front of a little red button. And considering its accessibility, what he has to say about that button surprises me. I'm going to tell you about, in this secret basement, a real, real deep secret. And I'm glad this is on radio. And you'll find out why. Because if you want to ruin the day for 700,000 customers, just push that red button. It shuts down all the power to all of the trains, all the tracks, all the third rail, to all of Grand Central Terminal. It is an emergency off switch. That little red button right there. One red button perfectly exposed, and, and it has to be. Here's why. Because if there is a fire or a problem in Grand Central, yes, and we have firemen and rescue people all over, running all over the tracks. We don't want to have them electrocuted. We don't know exactly where they are. We don't know exactly which tracks to switch off. We punch that button. All power goes off. Now, obviously, it's going to make for a pretty rotten morning, but uh, what it will do is make sure everybody's secure, and it has to be available for that emergency to be punched it right out. Now, you don't flip a switch and get it all started. It can take you about 45 minutes to re-energize all the tracks, all the systems. We have to make sure that all the power coming back in here, again from Con Edison, is what they call in phase. So it is a very fast process to turn it off, but a long, painstaking process to get it all turned on again. After we toured Grand Central's secret basement, Metro North spokesman Dan Brucker walked us up Park Avenue to the Waldorf Astoria, where he unlocked the mysteries of Track 61, a secret train platform under the historic hotel. One of the great advantages of radio is that for the first time ever, I can introduce the public to the secret entranceway right here off of Park Avenue. Who would ever think that behind this door is an entrance to a secret train station hidden within the bowels of Grand Central Terminal. Grand Central is a terminal, but this is a station. The station we're going to go down to is historic in size and importance even to this day, and so secret that where we're standing, if anybody went walking through here making an attempt to get into this doorway, which your nice radio listeners can't see, they would be greeted by people with guns in their faces. Well, let's go down and show you why. Let's head down. And we're going to watch our footing real carefully. Okay. We are heading down these dark, dreary, murky stairs uh, after entering from very Tony, classy Park Avenue. We're going farther and farther down under the street you can hear the hissing steam pipes in this area because it is virtually an underground um, uh, passageway for steam, for other electric conduits, but it's also an area that, as we can see, has cracks 
a lot of abandoned equipment, abandoned track areas. It's looked as if we've gone into a dark, deep, dingy, almost forgotten-like era. Uh, almost like a, partly a salvage yard, partly a train area. And in fact, this area serves some very, very important people and important reasons. Here's why. This train station, and this is a station with a concrete platform, which originally was 50 feet long, with tracks going up to its side. And it was built at great expense by our New York Central back in the 1930s, even though they knew no customers were ever going to arrive at this train station and no customers were ever going to depart from this train station. Why build it? They built it for only one customer. That one customer was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Our president from 1933 to 1945 had polio. He could not walk. In those days, these are things you did not show to the public. Hence, any pictures, images of him, any public appearance, where you would never see him in a wheelchair, walking with crutches. So when he would arrive in New York City, he would arrive on a private train that would come into the tunnels of Grand Central Terminal. By the time that train was in the tunnels of Grand Central Terminal, he would be aboard a train car on that train, which carried his Pierce Arrow limousine. He would be seated in his Pierce Arrow limousine on that train car. When that train pulled up, it would pull up and stop right next to this platform. He would be driven off that train car down onto this platform. And at the end of this platform is one of the oddest looking elevators you ever saw. It's only about five and a half feet wide, but it has to be nearly eight feet tall. And it's about 24 feet long. Well, guess what? That elevator was custom designed to fit the width, length, and weight of his armor-cleared Pierce Arrow limousine. He would be driven directly onto that, and in one fell swoop, he would be lifted up into the Waldorf Astoria, sight unseen, preserved from any public view, and he would leave the same way. Now, this secret train station envelops a mystery, because ever since the end of 1945, this, what we're looking at here, this very strange, murky, odd-looking behemoth of a train car has been just sitting here not moving, not going anywhere. We always thought, well, this much we knew. We knew it was designed in the 1920s or 1930s. We knew the design was to carry private automobiles. We knew nothing more. The numbers of it uh, were not representative of any of our train car equipment. Whose was it? We know that it ends in the letter X, which means it's privately held, not by the railroad, but oftentimes by the federal government. Now, we always thought or believed that this could be the train car that carried Franklin Delano Roosevelt's automobile, and he as well. For sure, the Secret Service came down here and examined this train car, and they came up with some startling conclusions. First of all, yes, designed in the 20s and 30s, and to carry private automobiles, yes. But they determined that this entire train car is armor-clad. To carry an automobile makes no sense. What few little windows are in there are all made bulletproof, the only way they could in those days, by many, many, many layers of glass all melded together. Why bulletproof glass for an automobile? Perhaps the most telling element of all were what we call the trucks. Trucks are the wheel assemblies that have the wheels 
and also the, the suspension system. The suspension system on this train car is so vastly overbuilt, vastly over-engineered, and is designed like no other train in the world because it is designed to eliminate all lateral motion, any side movement, which happens on all trains. And only Franklin Delano Roosevelt's private train cars had this one only suspension because any lateral movement for Franklin Delano Roosevelt was not good. He had no musculature below those waist. He could topple over in his seat. It had to be eliminated. That was a telling mark. And hence, down here, not only do we have Franklin Delano Roosevelt's private train platform, his own private elevator, but even his own private train car that carried President Roosevelt and his Pierce Arrow limousine all together in one place, buried deep under Park Avenue. How do you know for sure this station was built specifically for FDR? Because some historians say it was built prior to FDR, and the first passenger here was General John J. Pershing. There have been stories and beliefs that, oh, it was built for the Waldorf Astoria. It was built for their own customers who could come up here in their private, uh, private train cars. No, it was not. And here's how we know that. Whenever we build a structure or anything for somebody else, a private company, a private building, we build them for every dime we spent on it. They're called workforce uh, uh, accounts. We have workforce accounts dating from the 1800s. We never lose them because we want to make sure the other people maintain it, and we don't. Guess what? There, for a project like this, we would have workforce accounts that would take on the size of drawers and drawers and drawers of, of filing cabinets. And we have none for this. Also, this elevator, only we operate it. It goes into Waldorf Astoria. Only we operate it, maintain it, and control this entire thing. We built it. We know when we built it. We built it, indeed, right about the same time the Waldorf Astoria was being built. Also, how often FDR was here and how often we, he used it is a deep mystery even to the Secret Service. And here's how they explained it. Obviously, to keep this place secret, there was absolute radio silence when this train was coming into Grand Central and when it was parked down here. There was no communication, lest anybody knows that his train car was here. Yes, they have documentation that he was here at certain times, that the train was here at certain times, but in terms of live radio communications, that wasn't the case. Even to this day, if it's being used, and I cannot tell you that it will be used or can be used, okay, or for what purpose, but if a train is coming into Grand Central Terminal, and even people who shouldn't be listening to radio communication, if that train is directed to go to track 61 by unfolding a detailed track chart. You will search and you will see tracks up to the high 50s and then to the mid 60s. There are no track 61s. There are no tracks near around 61. There is a track 61, but it's not there. It doesn't exist. An entire train can come into Grand Central Terminal and then mysteriously disappear as did Franklin Delano Roosevelt's train. So since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, no other U.S. president has used this track? Right. After Franklin Delano Roosevelt died, all of a sudden there was no reason for this, and there was no reason for his train car, and hence his train car wound up over here. So you're not going to confirm for us whether U.S. presidents today use this station? I 
rarely, never say no comment to the press because I love them. But in this case, I am going to say for the first time, no comment. Thank you very much, Dan Brucker. Thank you. Dan Brucker is a Metro North spokesman and Grand Central historian. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. On this morning's show, we're shining a light on New York City's underground. Joining us now on the phone is Rich Fitzsimmons. He's part of a group known as the Sandhawks, construction workers responsible for digging tunnels beneath New York City. We have them to thank for the city's subway, sewer, water, and train tunnels. Rich is a third-generation Sandhawk and the business manager of the Sandhawks Union, Local 147. Hey, Rich. How you doing? Good. George, how are you? As I mentioned, you're a third-generation Sandhog. Is Sandhogging often passed down through generations of families? Yeah, um, uh, a good portion of our members are either second- or third-generation Sandhogs. What's a day at work like for a Sandhog? We work three shifts, so our shifts uh, do vary. Um, we work uh, basically an eight-hour day. How much do you appreciate sunlight, Rich? You appreciate it a lot, no doubt, especially in the winter months. It's tough. How far below ground are you on average, or does that depend on the project? For the recent, in the recent years, we've been actually in what you call deep shafts, you know, being its water tunnel. Uh, water tunnel made sure that they went under all the existing faults in Manhattan, and that's normally the reason that they go so deep is to get into more stable earth. Uh, we were working on an average about 600 feet for the last, I guess, 30 years. Um, we're working on some subway transit jobs now that are uh, done at a sh- more shallow level, probably about 80 to 120 feet below the ground. Mm. How dangerous is your job? The job is dangerous. It's, it's heavy, considered heavy highway. It's A, construction. Uh, all the people that are on the job site have to be what you call journeymen. So you, uh, you need the experience to get on the site somewhat to get on there to begin with. So what kind of training is involved? Training is usually on the job, but we don't have a, an apprenticeship. We do do, once we organize a member, um, you know, whether we organize them through uh, you know, a relative or a friend, um, we would send them to an Arizona 80-hour training course that would include uh, uh, 40 hours of practical, uh, you know, actual tunneling, and then 40 hours of safety. How common, Rich, are on-the-job deaths? Um, there, you know, I want to know, I'm going to find a piece of wood right now in my office, and I'll make sure I knock on it heavy. Um, we don't like to jinx ourselves. We are somewhat superstitious. We've been pretty lucky. Uh, we attribute a little bit, I'd say, to, to the recent training. The deaths aren't as prevalent as they used to be, but I could still probably comfortably say that, you, you know, you could lose a, you know, the average has been a man a mile. Uh, for what you call large interceptor tunnels. Now, that's like anywhere from 24 to 32 feet, and that would include water tunnel. I've read that lung disease is the biggest threat on the job. Is that true? Yeah, I'd say our biggest culprit uh, would be battling uh, the dust itself. Are the Sandhogs a diverse group, or do they tend to have similar backgrounds? We're pretty diverse. We we have basically three groups. We have uh, what you call Irish uh, from Ireland, uh, immigrants that immigrated here and have uh, worked their way into the business either through England, uh, you know, tunneling operations in England or Ireland or Europe, and then they come into the United States and they find found their way into the tunneling business. And then we also have West Indians who have also been here for probably three generations, and they come from mostly the island of Karakou, 
Granada, and St. Vincent. We also have some Trinidad, and then a couple Grenadians. Is it mostly a male industry? Um, yes, I'm, I'm going to probably get myself in big trouble right now. Uh, we are uh, 100% male. Not one female right now, not one female Santog, huh? Um, we had one that would came from Boston that's trying to uh, break in, and then she might have went back home. Uh, I guess we could say we have one. Do a lot of people not make it? Do a lot of people just give up because it's just too dark and dreary down there? Yeah, well, we have a tough way of soliciting our new members. We're probably one of the last shape-up unions in the in the city, and that means you go right to the job site and you solicit your own work. So a lot of your, you know, if you're going to get a job really depends on your performance. So capitalism is alive and well in the Sandhawks. How has new technology changed the industry? Technology's changed a lot. You know, I can, I can uh, sit here as the business manager and tell you that a local, you know, 30 years ago when tunnels going full blast, we had roughly 2,300 members. Now we're going full blast again, and we have roughly 1,000 members. Hmm. So if that tells you anything, uh, technology is, uh, is hurt. Of course, we're laborers, and technology means replacement of labor. But we're hoping that the, the jobs will be uh, easier to bid. Uh, they'll be more competitive. And then hopefully we'll be doing more tunneling with less people, safer. I would imagine, Rich, you're familiar with the old saying, if it's deeper than a grave, the Sandhogs dug it. Yeah, you know, we like to, to make that claim. Uh, I, I don't want to piss the grave diggers off, you know what I mean? Rich Fitzsimmons, thank you so much for your time. All right, talk to you. Rich Fitzsimmons is a third-generation Sandhog and the business manager of the Sandhogs Union, Local 147. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Michal Niria. Have a great weekend.